This season of Well and Good with Art and Matilda is brought to you by Subaru. We love Subarus, and we think they're the perfect car for Kiwis. Indeed they are, Art, because Kiwis are doers, right? And so are Subaru drivers. We're the kind of people who are always pushing to sneak that little bit more out of life. We stay out surfing for that one last wave. We sneak in a trip down to the river for a swim. And we stay at the beach eating our fish and chumps until the very last speck of light is gone. So if you want to do more, do it with Subaru. G'day mates! We are currently sitting over here in Bondi Beach, Sydney. We've come over for a long weekend and we decided to catch up with our good friend Drew Harrisburg for a bit of a podcast. Yes, down the flaming craze, Kelba. Drew is a, is a really interesting guy. He was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at quite a late age. Um, uh, you know, for people that I know that have been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, I think he was about 21 or so when he did. And he's really uh, passionate about health and the things that he's learned through health he does through experience which is something that I think is very uh, valuable um, taking that experience and then sharing it with the people around him to help try and improve people's health and I just really love how open he is like he he's not set in one type of belief like if someone mm. comes to him and it's like hey I've I've tried this or there's some new science around this he's just open to taking that on board I mean like cool I'll, I'll give it a shot you know he's someone who was who's was paleo for a, a number of years and now he's switched to a plant-based diet because he's finding it works a lot better with him and with his type 1 diabetes and he's got some really good insights it's a hugely interesting podcast and we hope you're going to bloody love it. Welcome, Drew. Thank you. This is so exciting <laughs> that you're here. Yeah. Well, um, you're technically here. Yes, We true. are technically oh, here. Oh, yeah, we are here. So we'll set the scene. We're currently sitting in an Airbnb in Bondi, Sydney. Right in the thick of it. It's in pouring with rain outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is Drew's hood, isn't it? Yeah, you're in my hood. Mm. We're actually on the street that I get a coffee at every single morning. Yeah. And you guys have copied my routine and pretty much <laughs> done the same thing three a we day. We essentially become you when we come to Sydney. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's awesome, right? <laughs> the, this morning, you've taken me for a, a rope climb in a semi-jungle location with a bunch of other guys. Yes. <laughs> Almost like, felt like we were part of this cult community, which was quite fun. It is. And we went for a swim. Yeah. And I've had three coffees. And we've uh, eaten some pretty good food too. Mm. Oh, we've had well, that, some great What food. you just said there is the Bondi experience. Yeah. Some beach time, exercise, and some pretty damn good food. Yeah, some climbing roads. And coffee, and... of course. And coffee. Yeah, I mean, Bondi really is a health hub. Like, it's you see so many healthy and fit people walking around, and it's quite inspiring. Mm. Yeah, every time I come here, I get inspired. Like, I have to start my day with some form of fresh air because that's what everyone seems to do here, right? Eh? Yeah. It's first thing in the morning, and they're all out exactly. walking their dogs and running along the boardwalk thing. Yeah. It's like a health and fitness culture that you can't escape. Mm. Like you said, there's almost, you feel like this little bit of extra push, this bit of motivation to make the most, you know. Because like, everyone else is doing it. Yeah. You know, there's a, probably like a thousand people on the beach yeah. by 7 a.m. doing their boot camp, walking their dog, swimming in the ocean. So it's like, if you're not yeah. a part of that, what are you doing? So true. Wasting your time. What's your morning routine like or your ideal morning? So my morning routine, I actually say often that my morning routine is literally the most important hour of your day because it just sets you up for a productive day or an unproductive day. So the first thing I do is I try to wake up before the sun and often I wake up naturally, no alarm clock, just because my body's in that sort of rhythm already. And then the first 30 minutes to 60 minutes of my day, no phone, straight outside. Got to get straight outside. So I'll take my dog for a walk. I will then go for a swim, 
grab a coffee. And if I want to do a little workout, I'll do a workout. If I feel hungry, I'll eat. If not, I'll just skip breakfast and eat later in the day. Mm. But it's pretty much I'm getting a dose of nature, some sort of movement and, of course, a cup of coffee. And why do you leave your phone for the first hour? I just feel like if you check your phone as soon as you wake up, you're flooding your brain with all of this just external noise on social media and honestly... It's things that you don't need for the first hour of your day. And it can affect your mood negatively. It's just, I feel like it's an unnatural way to to start your day and wake up when you're getting influenced by people who you don't really know and they're saying things that you might not agree with and then you start the day on the wrong foot. So it's kind of like just get grounded, get connected with your thoughts and feelings for the day, get outside into nature and then once you've done all that, then sure, check your social media. Totally. And are you like a rain, hail or shine kind of get outside every morning kind of guy? Yeah. I mean, I've got two reasons for that and one is my dog. Mm. He's a rain, hail, shine guy so I, <laughs> I just have to get him out there. But also for my mental sanity, like if I don't get outside, let's say I just go straight to work and I'm indoors for the day, I'm not the same person. I'm mm. a bit grumpier, less productive. So, yeah, no matter what, I'll get out there and I swim every day of the year. So winter, I'm out there every morning. I feel like that's – I mean, you would know all about that from mm. New Zealand – Yep. <laughs> Cold start. But yeah, I feel, I feel like in winter, that's some of the most rewarding swims where you like have to go through that little mental struggle. And it wakes you up, something oh chronic, gosh. right? It's just, it wakes you up. It's your whole body. And then, yeah, yeah you feel so alive. Mm. So yeah, for sure, the conditions aren't going to stop me. And do you know um, much about like the physiology or the health aspects behind doing cold swims or any reason that you do it? Yeah. I mean, other than like the feeling of achievement and accomplishment, Like it's nice to feel like you've accomplished something early in the day. So there's that mental side. But then I guess it's a hormetic stressor. So hormesis is basically when you put your body through a short sort of acute stress that you actually get these long-term health benefits. But the dose is important. Like for example, a swim in in winter, first thing in the morning, like a very, very cold swim for five or 10 minutes is great. Your body has all these adaptations that happen physiologically but if you stay in for an hour, you can probably kill yourself. Mm. So, you know what I mean? It's like the dose is important. That's why hormesis yeah. is like a small stressor in the right dose. Mm. And exercise is the same. It's a hormetic stressor. So an hour of a workout, you're putting your body under quite a lot of stress, but it adapts and gets stronger. But if you work out for five, ten hours, you're going to be in trouble. So I feel like throughout the day, I'm always looking for these little hormetic stresses. Mm. I find myself doing that, actually. I feel like our whole body responds to stress in every aspect and it basically improves itself yes with everything yeah like all Mm. kinds of stress yeah exactly so if you start your day with that little stress you feel like nothing can break you once you put yourself like that self-inflicted pain Mm. of like an ice plunge what's going to affect you during the day you've already done it to yourself yeah totally what's worse than that yeah exactly what's worse than that yeah (laughs) it's still enjoyable don't get me wrong but yeah Andrew, you have type 1 diabetes, right? So can you give us a little bit of background of your life leading up to that diagnosis and how that diagnosis affected you and how it changed your life? Yeah, yeah. So growing up, I was always a health conscious guy. I I love nature. I love outdoors. I love exercise, sport. I've always had kind of like an interest in nutrition and science in the body well before I had diabetes. So it was always in me already that I was this health conscious person. And yeah, growing up, I felt unstoppable. You know, I really had a great life. I had no problems, no health issues. And then when I was about 21, I started to notice some quite serious changes happening. So I was playing rugby at the time and I was losing weight very, very rapidly. 
I had lost a ton of muscle. My coach like pointed out to me how small I was and he kept reminding me that like, mate, you've got to put on some size. And I'm like, I'm eating so much food. I'm training hard in the gym. I just cannot gain any muscle. In fact, I'm totally losing muscle day by day. So that was the first sort of visible sign. And then I had these other signs where I was always sort of hungry, always thirsty, waking up in the night to go to the toilet numerous times and to drink a lot of water. And then probably the biggest sign of all was just this incredible exhaustion that I was feeling. So tied to the point where I was no longer in control of my consciousness. So there was this moment that was, it was the scariest moment ever. I can like laugh about it now, but at the time it was terrible. I was doing my accreditation to become an exercise physiologist. So I just finished my degree as a sports scientist and I had to do like a certain amount of hours as my accreditation. So I went to this hospital to the cardiac rehab ward and I was trying to basically get a job there to do my accreditation. And I was sitting face to face with the uh, head exercise physiologist. And so sort of like we are just sitting at a table and I fell asleep <laughs> no face way. to face. Yeah. So I first felt myself oh like no. sort of dozing off. I just couldn't keep my eyes open. And then I, I, was, I was literally like my head was falling forward, <laughs> falling asleep face to face. And that was when I realized I was like, this is no longer normal. It's not normal. Because when you're in a bad spot in your life, you think it's normal because you, you don't – it like creeps up on you. Mm. And you kind of adapt to whatever yeah. you're feeling yes. at the time really quickly. And you almost justify the feeling. You're like, yeah, hey, it's normal. This is, this is fine. So I fell asleep that day in the interview and then that same day driving home, I fell asleep in a tunnel – Yes, it was frightening. And I woke up centimetres from the wall and kind of like swerved into my lane. I was like pinching myself, slapping myself, screaming, just doing anything to keep awake until I got to the other end of the tunnel and I pulled over and I slept in my car for 30 minutes on the side of the road. Oh, my goodness. That was like the day where I was like, okay, this is something going on here. This is just totally abnormal. So both my parents are doctors and I went, I went home to my parents and I said, guys, there's something wrong. We need to get me checked up. Let's go get blood tests. I uh, went for some blood tests and basically I got some results that came back that were like pointing towards type 1 diabetes, but I didn't yet fully have it. Like I wasn't diagnosed at that point. And the test that came back was basically like a three-month average blood sugar level that said it was slightly elevated, but not, not crazy, like literally like 0.2 outside of the normal range. And so they said, you know, you might develop diabetes one day. I also had antibodies in my blood test that indicated that there was an autoimmune attack occurring and that it was attacking my pancreas, which is the cells that produce insulin. So they said, look, could be five days, could be five years. We're not sure. Or maybe not at all. You might not even get it. But basically what you're going to do is you're going to take this blood glucose meter home, measure your blood sugars, come back to see us in two weeks and we'll go over your results. So I did that and they were mostly normal. And then I went back in there to the clinic. It was a diabetes clinic. And the sickening irony is that my dad, he's a, he's a doctor, he's an eye surgeon, and he specializes in diabetic eye disease. So he's dedicated his whole life to saving the vision of people with diabetes. And he took me to the clinic where he worked at to speak to the educators and the endocrinologists. And we were going over my logbook and he was sitting next to me and they pulled out a new glucose meter that they just received and they thought would be good for me to try out because it was you know a smaller more accurate version or whatever so she opened the box she did like a finger prick tested my blood sugar and it came back five times outside the normal range and that was the first time I'd seen a number that high and my dad said no there's something wrong with that meter go get one that actually works because my son doesn't have diabetes like just total denial like he could yeah. not I mean you know he'd seen the worst of the worst case scenario of, of diabetes complications. Mm. 
So they got another meter, we tested again, and it was again, it was like five times the normal range. You came back at like 16, and you want to be sort of four to six. And yeah, that was the day that I was diagnosed. So with my dad sitting next to me in the clinic that he'd spent his whole career, you know, working with these experts, and now his son had diabetes. Yeah, it was, cra- it was absolutely crazy. It's like a life-changing moment, especially after, like I said, feeling so invincible, you know. You think you get to age 21, you don't have a disease, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm good, I made it. Mm. Especially if you've kind of been healthy your whole life and you've been sort of doing everything right. Is it something that you can have a family history of or is it hereditary in any way? So, yeah, there is a genetic element in my case. No, I didn't have a family history of it at all. So it was completely out of nowhere. It was the last thing anyone expected. Even the signs of diabetes now are so obvious, but when you're going through it, if you don't know what to look out for, how do you know? I went from feeling unstoppable to then being totally broken. And then, yeah, ever since then, I've just been kind of turning it into one of my biggest assets in a strange way. It's ironic how, the, how life works. But, yeah, it's become sort of my career now. But at the time, like I said, I was definitely depressed and, and in a bad spot. And I just eventually just decided to make myself an expert in this space. And that's been the journey. And so just to everyone listening, what's the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Good question. Okay, so type 1, which is what I have, is an autoimmune disease. So basically your immune system attacks and destroys the cells of the pancreas that produce insulin so you don't produce any insulin you have to either inject it which is what i do or you can be on an insulin pump which is basically like a device that's constantly attached to you and it administers insulin through like a tube into your body type 2 diabetes is not autoimmune so you still produce insulin in the beginning anyway it's just the difference is the insulin doesn't work properly so it can't attach to the cell where it's meant to allow glucose to enter so the, the symptoms of type 1 and type 2 are the same. You both have high blood sugar levels. That's the main characteristic. In one case, it's because you don't have insulin at all in type 1 diabetes. I mean, in the other case, it's just that the insulin doesn't work properly. So the actual um, the pathogenesis and the way the disease manifests are, are so different, but the symptoms are the same. So you have to kind of figure out which one you have based off a number of tests. What are some signs? You know, you said some of the things you experienced when you first started you know, noticing things with your diabetes. Are they the sort of same signs that someone with type 2 diabetes would experience? Yeah, very similar. So yeah. most of those symptoms are because your blood sugar is really, really high. So you feel hungry all the time because the energy that you're getting from your food is sitting in your bloodstream, right? So all the sugar's in your bloodstream, but it's meant to be in the cells. So you feel like you're almost starving, even though you actually are eating. And then the reason you're urinating all the time, again, is because your body's trying to get rid of and flush out all the sugar that's in your bloodstream through the kidneys, And then, of course, you feel tired because, again, you're not getting the energy into the cells. And, yeah, so all of those symptoms would be the same. In fact, even type 2 diabetics can lose weight because, again, you're essentially starving yourself, Mm. even though you might be eating. Mm. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's quite a stigma that people with type 2 are overweight or obese. But actually, when they're diagnosed, they can lose weight as well. So it's very tricky. Mm. This terrain was tricky to to navigate through for me and I was trained as a scientist I had parents who were doctors so I can't imagine how hard it is for people who have no prior knowledge exactly exactly it would be just one of the hardest things to sort of deal with I often say I was the perfect candidate to get diabetes because I I understood the science I had a passion for health and wellness already and I had the best network of doctors and health professionals you can imagine but the saddest thing is that diabetes affects people who are on the opposite end of the spectrum who have no help no network don't understand it 
you know, and it's an expensive disease to manage and it's difficult and scary. Like the complications of diabetes are super frightening. Oh, frightening, eh? Oh, my goodness. And like they used a, quite a scare tactic on me when I was diagnosed to sort of kind of nudge me in the direction of like look after your diabetes or mm. else this could happen to you. But the last thing you want to hear when you're diagnosed with a chronic disease is the potential long-term complications, which are in the case of diabetes is they're called like the three opathies. So retinopathy, so blindness basically nephropathy so kidney disease so you end up on dialysis and neuropathy so your nerves nerve damage and you can have like limbs removed the worst picture is of somebody who's blind on kidney dialysis without a foot that is the the scariest part of diabetes and that's that's not uncommon that's a very common thing to happen that's why they do tell you that early on yeah it's terrifying but it also gives you a lot of motivation to look after yourself yeah definitely I heard that back before they could monitor blood glucose levels, that the way that they'd tell if you had diabetes was that your urine is sweet because you're just pissing out the glucose. Is that right? That is spot on. Imagine being doctors, these, you know, wonderful health professionals would have to taste it. Just having a cup of piss. (laughs) (laughs) I I doubt it was a cup. (laughs) Surely just a sip. Maybe they heated up so it was a warm Oh, my goodness. You're right, though. Isn't that a crazy thought? (laughs) Yeah. To think that the doctor would have to taste your urine. Mm. That's yeah, so, really bizarre. I know. Thank God for technology and it's come a long way. We don't yeah, have to do well, that anymore. Especially if you're a doctor. Yeah, yeah. yeah that'd be stoked. Yeah. Yeah. The other question I have, that interview that you went for where you fell asleep, how mm. did it go with that? Did you get the job? I got the job, yeah. Did you? Yeah, I did get the job. And did you <laughs> tell him it wasn't you, it was me? Well, I didn't know at that point. I worked for that uh, hospital for I think it was maybe like six or eight weeks. And again, the whole time I was totally exhausted. I pretty much had diabetes, but undiagnosed for that whole time. And every day was a struggle. I would fall asleep in the tunnel every single day. I would struggle to keep my eyes open all day, but I didn't know what was wrong. So I'd never told him. So mate, if you're listening to this, I had diabetes. (laughs) That's why I fell asleep. It's also like a real testament to how good you were in that interview that you can fall asleep and still get the job. True. Or maybe he just felt so sorry for me. He's like, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. This poor kid, we've got to give him the job. No one else is going to give it to him. (laughs) Oh, you're bored now. I'll show you bored in a few months. (laughs) So I guess it's been quite quite interesting for you because you're so interested with your own health. Now it's like having diabetes has forced you to really monitor what's happening on the inside of your body throughout all of the different nutrition that you're sort of experimenting with and the exercise you're experimenting with and it must be quite eye-opening it is diabetes is the most objective disease that you can get almost because like you said you're monitoring your blood sugar every day so i monitor 15 times a day i'm doing finger pricks and checking my blood 15 times is it the same finger or do you mix it up you move around Mm. do like the palm of the hand and all sorts of places just to save some flesh because it's after a while hands take a beating yes we yeah maddie and i just pricked our fingers before we started this podcast yeah checked our blood glucose yeah and you see how quick it is like it sounds like 15 wow it's a lot but it takes like two seconds to do so especially when you're thinking about your health it's worth worth it. it you're gonna do it But yeah, you get these amazing insights into your body as a diabetic, you know, checking your blood sugar. And then the other side of it is administering insulin. So you can see what lifestyle factors affect, firstly, what your blood sugar level is. And then secondly, your sensitivity to insulin or how well your insulin is working. And every day since I've been diagnosed, it's just been a big self-experiment. So there's so many like variables that affect these things. And I guess one of the beauties, if you can say that, about diabetes is that it's made me so much more aware and conscious about these lifestyle factors. How Um, everything affects you. Everything. Things you wouldn't even believe. Mm. So, for example, a sleepless night, 
I noticed that the next day I'd need more insulin and my blood sugar would slowly sort of rise over the day. And then, you know, I looked into the science and it supports exactly that, that if you don't sleep properly, especially for like three, four, five nights, you are partially insulin resistant for the following day. And then there's things like exercise, how that affects your blood sugar and the food you eat and stress levels and how much time you spend outdoors. And it's just, it's nonstop. But there was a moment where it was actually the day after I was diagnosed. So after being diagnosed, before they could give me insulin to use, they basically said, you've got to go home, check your blood sugar before and after meals, when you wake up, when you go to bed, just to get a real idea of the trends and patterns of your blood sugar and how your lifestyle affects your blood glucose levels. Then we'll give you insulin to implement around that because insulin is very, very dangerous hormone. It's a life-saving hormone. You can't live without it, but it's super dangerous because if you overdose on insulin, you can end up having a seizure, end up in a coma or dead. And it is, it's no joke. Like insulin is super powerful. So they sent me off and it was the day after I was diagnosed, I went to eat the normal breakfast that I would eat before, before going to the gym. And I think I ate like a banana and maybe some yogurt and oats or something. I can't even remember what it was, but whatever it was, it spiked my blood sugar to 25. And that was the highest number I'd ever seen. It was 16 the day before when I was diagnosed and then it went up to 25 and I was devastated. I saw this number and I just felt like you're looking at your disease basically when you see a number that high. And then I went off to the gym and I did a workout that I would usually do, which was probably like 45 minutes to 60 minutes, full body workout, no rest, every muscle group, compound exercises, get a good sweat. It was like my escape. Like I felt so good in the gym and I felt, you know, I was in my happy place. I finished my workout and checked my blood sugar. And this was a moment that really was a jaw dropping moment my blood sugar was five when I finished. So my blood sugar had dropped from 25 down to five in 60 minutes of exercise with no insulin at this stage. So that was when I was like, whoa, okay. Firstly, now I understand what it means that, you know, exercise is inverted commas good for you. I get it now. Like I could quantify it. There was a number that I could actually, I could see it happening. Mm. And that was the day I was like, this is powerful stuff. And I always say like, exercise is a form of medicine that we can freely and happily administer to ourselves. You know, it is super potent medicine. And ever since then, it's just been a big experiment and, and I've exercised every day and it's the same. It still works the same. It drops your blood sugar. So I was just so happy that I figured that out on day one because it was so empowering. It gave me so much control. Whilst, you know, a lot of people, the opposite could happen. You get diagnosed and you shell up and you stop trying things and you become a little bit more conservative in, in the things you do. But for me, it was like this extra push to, to start training more and figure out what else could happen in terms of lifestyle factors. Like you said, there's so many things that affect your blood sugar. And that was the first day that I realized that exercise is really amazing stuff. Yeah, I suppose because, you know, most people who exercise, they're told that exercise is so good for us, you know, a whole heap of different ways, but you're actually getting a tangible measure of one of the markers that really shows how beneficial it is yeah. for the human body. And it's not just me, like this same process is happening in you and everyone else. Yeah. I just get to see it. You just monitor it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that's why now my advice for people who have say type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes or gestational diabetes or whatever it is, or just interested in controlling their blood sugar levels is to walk after meals. Simple thing. Everyone can do it. Even if you work a nine to five job, there's, everyone gets a lunch break. Even if it's 10 minutes, it does the trick. So you might not see the numbers that I'm seeing, but trust me, it's happening. So if you go eat a, a nice carb rich lunch and you've been sitting on your ass all day at work, the best thing you can do is get up and go for a 10 minute walk after your meal or maybe five minutes before your meal, five minutes after your meal. Just sort of timing your movement around those times of feeding is a great idea for most people. 
Here's a quick message from our sponsor, Sabaru. Well, it's no secret that both you and I bloody love Sabaru. We both drive them. Yep, that's no secret. Well, I drive a Sabaru Forester and that one car of the year last year in 2018. It's a medium SUV, and you may ask, what does a medium SUV mean? Well, it means you get all the good stuff of an SUV, of like feeling, you know, quite cool and high up in your big car, but it's a lot easier to to drive around the city, and it's a lot easier to park, which is a big one for me. I mean, I kind of need all the help I can get in that department. Mm, Yes, I'd agree with that. Well, okay, I can understand why that one car of the year. Mm. And it's super safe, it's comfortable, and it's full of tech. Some of that tech, exclusive to Subaru. Well, like what? Well, like the driver recognition system. So, for example, if you get in my car and drive it, which sometimes happens, and you change all the settings, you're putting the chair back, you're turning the mirrors, and then if I get back in the car, it's going to scan me, know who I am, and put all my settings back in place automatically. That is quite cool tech. I know. It's super epic. And what do you drive? Outback. Thoughts? Outback. Love it. It's the people's car, the car of New Zealand. Why is that? Well, it does everything. You can you drive around the city. It's all-wheel drive. You can shoot up the mountain. It's got built-in roof racks, chuck some boards on the roof, head down for a surf, big enough space in the back. You can go on road trips. You can, I've slept in the back. It's that big. Yeah, that is actually impressive because you're quite tall, aren't you? Mm, correct. So go on. Go check out one for yourself. Visit Subaru.co.nz to check out the Subaru range and find an SUV to suit your lifestyle. And unlike Auckland's house prices, they're totally affordable. And so talking about food, so you're plant-based now. Um, yes. But that hasn't always been the case. Can you tell us a little bit about the stuff you've tried and the trial and error you've gone through with your diet? Yeah, it's been a, a big journey. I've tried <laughs> everything. So the first thing I discovered after getting diagnosed was I think I did a Google search. I literally typed into Google how to control blood sugar levels with nutrition or something like that. And the first thing that I found was the paleo diet and – there was a lot of people raving about it online and there was a huge communities of paleo people and, and diabetic paleo people too. So I was like, okay, I'll give this a shot. Sounds great. I mean, the, the logic behind the diet resonated really well with me. You just eat how our ancestors ate. If you can hunt it or gather it, you can eat it. You know, it, just, it's, it really is like a whole food diet. Yeah. But it, it, it tended to be on the lower carb end of the spectrum as well. And after implementing the paleo diet, the results were incredible. So Within probably the first six months of being paleo, my insulin requirements dropped by about 70%, which was massive. Again, it was one of those moments where I was in control again. Because you've got to pay for that insulin, right? Yeah, it's diabetes is a very expensive disease. So I guess that part of it is, is that's kind of a nice thing. You can maybe save some bucks and inject less insulin. But even just knowing that I was injecting less means it's safer because it's such a powerful, dangerous hormone. I kind of felt a lot safer that I could control my diabetes with less insulin and, you know, felt really good. You know, I fell in love with paleo. So for people who aren't diabetic, basically trying to follow a a lifestyle that's more in line with paleo nutrition, they'd be having the same effect on their blood glucose as what? Yeah, so you'd have a lot more flatline blood sugar levels. You'd also, your body requires less insulin. Like you said, whether you're diabetic or not, you're going to experience those same sort of results. And I stuck to the paleo diet for eight years because I just it just was working so well. It was actually my paleo diet was mainly plant based. Of course, I ate animal products and eggs and meat, fish and all that sort of stuff. But the base of my diet was really vegetables and fruit and you know meat, fish, eggs. I mean that's that's kind of in line with how if you 
doing a paleo diet properly, that's kind of what it should be, predominantly plants, plant-based. Yeah. Right? Uh, because that, that would be in line with what our ancestors would like, yeah, predominantly yeah. eat. Because it's not as if they would have access to a lot of meat every day. No, absolutely not. It would be very sparse. The things that they could gather would be available a lot. It would be highly accessible. I mean, trying to hunt down an animal every day for three meals a day like we do, it's not how it worked. You know, the paleo era was more plant-based than we can even imagine. Of course, when they could get their hands on an animal, of course they'd eat it, full of nutrients and calories that would keep them alive. But, you know, I was quite aware that if I could just eat a lot of fiber and a lot of vegetables and keep my carbs low, that I could really, really manage my diabetes very well. And like I said, so eight years on a paleo diet with pretty damn good results. Then I decided to give keto a try because, you know, the buzz around keto is pretty big. A lot of people are talking about it. It's certainly one of those diets that's surfaced and and people cling onto it. And I was getting a lot of questions from people with diabetes asking me what, what I thought about keto for diabetes. But because I hadn't tried it myself, I couldn't give any recommendations and I didn't truly know whether it was good or bad. So I thought I'd have to try it and give it a go. So I started a keto diet and again, the results even better now. So I dropped my carbs to less than 50 grams a day. And when I was paleo, they were probably about 150 grams a day. And for the first couple of months... For, wait, just for like someone trying to imagine that, what, what does 50 grams of carbs look like in food form? So if we're talking like whole food form... Yeah. So a banana is about 20 grams of carbs. Right. So... A couple of bananas. Two bananas a day, you're maxed out your carbs. But mm. that also means that if you are eating two bananas a day, then you can't get carbs from any other vegetables or anything else. So... In a practical sense, it would probably be one banana a day and then the other 20 to 30 grams of carbs would come from very small amounts of carbohydrates in, say, carrots, like low-carb, yeah, low-carb, non-starchy vegetables. Yeah, you, you sort of veggies would, that you might have with your dinner. Yeah, with like some salad protein. Fed, yeah, yeah, exactly right, exactly. Like, you, like broccoli and things, like it would just yeah. add up over the day. So, it's, I mean, it's very carb-restrictive, very, very carb-restrictive, but when you're a diabetic and you get these kind of results, like I said, you cling to it. It's like so exciting. So the first two months on a keto diet, my blood sugars were just flatline. Incredible. No spikes, which uh, makes sense because I wasn't eating carbohydrates. 75% of my calories are coming from fat, which doesn't really affect your blood sugar levels. So I was seeing these great flat lines. But then I noticed that the second I wanted to eat any carbohydrates, that my blood sugars would not only spike incredibly high, but I would require much more insulin to get the carbs metabolized. So, you know, the, the first couple months kind of tricked me into thinking this was the best diet ever. I was like, this is amazing. I can't believe how well this works. You think, is this too good to be true? Yes. <laughs> and then the next couple months was where really it was a sort of the eye-opening part of the diet where I realized that just because I'm achieving flatline blood sugar and just because my insulin requirements are low, it doesn't mean I'm insulin sensitive. So I actually became very insulin resistant when I was on a keto diet. So... I couldn't eat carbohydrates without a huge spike. And then when I did want to eat any carbohydrates, I'd need three, four, five times the amount of insulin that I would have needed if I was on a different diet. So that got me thinking, looking to the research and like, what is going on here? Why am I insulin resistant on this diet? And, you know, there are there's so many hypotheses and reasons and, and the science points in certain directions. But in a nutshell, when you're highly fat adapted and eating a lot of fat, you become glucose intolerant. Your body is in, in an impaired state of glucose tolerance. Fat's the new fuel source. That's what your machines are running on. It doesn't require glucose. It doesn't think it needs it. And you become pretty bad at metabolizing it. And also you get this lipid buildup, so fats, that build up in cells that they're not meant to be in, which is muscle and liver cells. So 
a big indicator for me that something was going wrong was that even if I didn't eat anything at all, my liver was constantly pushing glucose out into my blood. And no matter how much insulin I gave, I couldn't get my numbers down. I'd wake up, my blood sugar would be 10 and I want it to be 5. Mm. An hour later, it would be 15. An hour later, it would be 20. And I hadn't eaten a single thing. So then I'd give insulin to try bring it back down because that's what insulin does. It, it puts glucose into the cells, which means your blood sugar starts to go down. It wasn't working. So I'd give an insulin dose, nothing happened. I'd give another one, nothing happened. It's quite scary. So I was insulin resistant. It was very scary because now I was going back to that moment when I was diagnosed thinking long-term complications of high blood sugar, blindness, kidney disease, nerve mm. pain, foot amputations. So I'm thinking if I can't get my insulin to work, I'm screwed. My sugar's mm. 20 all day long. I'm not even eating food. So that was another moment where I thought something has to change. Let's, let's see what's going on here. So is it kind of like you, like you train your body for different types of exercise? So you, you know, train it for um, weightlifting, you'll get bigger muscles, right? Train it for long distance running, you'll become slimmer, more efficient and that sort of thing. And then is it similar with the nutrition side of things? So you're training your body through eating, say, carb-rich foods or fat-rich foods. And so you're training that either the fat, metabolism or the carb metabolism spot on yeah, exactly right. exactly what happens and is that why when some people go keto for a long period of time well a certain period of time and then they go back to eating the same amount of carbs that they were before they find they put on weight quite quickly and is that just because your body has adapted to burning the fat and then as soon as fat as fuel sorry and then as soon as you go back to carbs it's sort of yeah. stores the carbs as fat is that how it works almost so you're right about the fuel source it gets adapted to a certain fuel source mm. so for example if you are on a high fat very low carb diet like a keto diet you're a great fat burner you're burning a lot of the fat you're eating so you eat a high fat meal and your body's pretty damn good at burning that fat as fuel turning it into ketones fueling the brain then on the other end of the spectrum if you're a high carb low fat diet like a plant-based diet you're very good at burning glucose. Glucose is now your primary fuel source and you're probably less good at burning fat. It's really a choice of what fuel source you want to be burning and also what other effects is it having. Now, this is where it gets tricky, is that on the surface, a keto diet looks like a fantastic solution for diabetes. And I see people talking about it all the time, that you don't need much insulin, your blood sugars are flat-lined, which seems great and it does seem like a solution and, and it is a potential solution. But if that means you have to avoid eating carbs for the rest of your life, it's a pretty big sacrifice. It's not really sustainable, it's not is not sustainable. It? And it also means that when you do eat carbs, for whatever reason, your body cannot tolerate them. Right? And for me, that wasn't good enough. That's a dangerous place to be when there is another solution too. And that's when I decided to attempt the, uh, the plant-based diet to see if going to the other end of the spectrum would cause the opposite result where I'd become very insulin sensitive and need less insulin, be able to tolerate glucose really well. And that's exactly what happened. And at the rate at which it happened was mind-blowing. So within a week of changing to a plant-based diet and, and dropping my fats really low and just eating whole foods in their natural form, not restricting anything, an abundance of food. The only things I wasn't eating was animal products just because I wanted to keep that saturated fat intake low to see what would happen. And you know, it's been now five and a half months and as we speak, this is the most insulin sensitive I've ever been in my life. So a good way for me to explain, I guess, to the listeners what insulin sensitivity is would be a ratio of how much insulin I need for a given amount of carbohydrate. So when I was keto, one unit of insulin would allow me to eat six grams of carbohydrate, right? It's not a great ratio. Now, 
one unit of insulin, I can eat 30 grams of carbohydrate. Wow. So really, I get this, again, this phenomenal objective insight into how well my insulin is working and what my body is doing with the glucose. So, you know, when you look at the science, the evidence shows that when you drop your fats lower and you start to eat more whole food, carbohydrate-rich foods, your insulin starts to actually work better. So the action of insulin is more efficient. Rather than, you know, an analogy would be the way that insulin works is insulin is like the key to undo a lock. If your lock gets jammed up with chewing gum, let's say, it's not gonna, it's not, the key's not going to work. So in the cell of the body, insulin is the key, but the lipids were jamming up the way that insulin was working because I was just eating too much saturated fat and it was being stored in the wrong place inside muscle and liver cells. So the reason that when my liver would push glucose out, that I couldn't get that process to stop was because insulin wasn't attaching to the liver cells to turn off, to go, hey, you don't have to push any more glucose out. Let's rather take some in from the bloodstream. We've got plenty in the bloodstream. Stop pushing it out. But that message was broken. It was dysfunctional. So again, being on both extremes, getting honestly great results on both in terms of blood sugar levels and insulin requirements. But the only difference is when I was keto, I couldn't tolerate carbohydrates, but now I can. So you know, it's for, fascinating. It's fascinating. It really mm. is. And I know I've only been doing plant-based for about six months now, so it's kind of early days still. But that's still a decent amount of time to understand the effects, right? Yeah, and, and especially when you compare it to how long I did keto, which was four months, I had really pretty awful results for the three, four-month mark of keto, and I'm already six-month plant-based with no bad results. So it does say something about the two. Again, I'm not saying that keto is the devil and you know everyone should avoid it at all costs. I'm just saying we need to be aware of the potential changes to our physiology. You know, I like to say that if you can achieve stable blood glucose levels and you're a diabetic and that's going to stop the long-term complications i don't care if you do it keto or plant-based high carb low carb i do not care credit to you i want you to be healthy and happy if that means you want to be keto go for it because the complications are really awful of diabetes so do what you got to do but i just want people to know that there is another solution that you can also achieve excellent blood glucose levels and low insulin requirements eating an abundance of carbs Mm -hmm. and you don't have to think that carbs are the devil. We've really demonized carbohydrates in society and they have been the victim of somebody else's crime, you know, which is ectopic lipid buildup, which means lipids building up where they're not meant to be. So the carbs look like the problem because they've triggered a blood sugar spike. Sure, we can all agree that, yes, the carbs did trigger the spike, but what caused the underlying insulin resistance in the first place? It wasn't the carbs. Carbs don't make you insulin resistance. The evidence says the complete opposite, that in fact, When you put people on a higher carb, very low fat diet, they become more insulin sensitive. Mm. So if you can achieve great diabetic management, eating a diet that has an absence of carbs, that's not truly curing or fixing the underlying cause. But if you can achieve those same results, so great blood sugar levels, low insulin requirements in the presence of carbs, that is truly reversing insulin resistance or reversing type 2 diabetes. If I, for example, see a patient who's a type 2 diabetic and I can get them to eat a whole food plant-based diet where they're eating carbohydrates every day at every meal and they're having normal blood sugar and low insulin levels, then that is a sign that they are improving their diabetic health. But if they go on a keto diet and achieve those same things, then they eat a banana and their blood sugar goes to 20, they haven't truly reversed it. You know? mm. So it's important to know that there are plenty of solutions out there. It comes down to personal preference, what you want to do. For me, the keto diet was not sustainable long-term at this stage, the plant-based diet is. And, I, you know, you don't even have to be 100% plant-based. 
maybe just 90%. Yeah, because I guess doing the keto diet as a form of managing long term doesn't really take into effect like the emotional and psychological aspect of it as well. I guess as soon as you restrict something so extremely and you have to focus so much of your energy on it, that can have emotional effects as well, though I guess that's something to consider 100%. Like it's the, not the, just physiological you know totally like the, the social implications that you, mm. you, like you said emotional when we think about being a healthy person it is so much more than just our blood sugar levels there's so many layers to being healthy yeah mental health is huge physical health is huge emotional psychological there all these things matter and if the diet you're on is so restrictive that it's impairing your ability to enjoy these other things in life how healthy is it really? If it's causing you any stress or anxiety, you know, it can't be right. Exactly. It can't be right for you long term. You know, especially when there is a solution that doesn't have to demonize carbohydrates. In fact, you can eat tons of carbohydrates on a plant-based diet as long as your fats are low enough. So I guess really a key here is that it's one or the other in terms of when you're looking at the macronutrients, carbohydrates and fats, you can't have them both up. That's a problem. That's the standard Western diet. A lot of sugar, a lot of processed food, a lot of fat, a lot of processed fat an overconsumption of calories that's the danger spot so if you'd go to either extreme where either carbs and uh, low or high whatever as long as you're not having both fats and carbs high at the same time you can achieve good results mm-hmm. you know but it does take unfortunately people don't like to hear this it does require you to sort of go towards either extreme to get the best results being stuck in the middle can be a little bit problematic and when you say carbs are you meaning whole food carbs or sort of like or any carbs including refined carbs yeah so when i talk about carbohydrates and when i'm giving advice to people i don't want people to eat any carbohydrates that are processed or refined so i'm talking whole food natural form unrefined carbohydrates that's the problem with the terminology carbohydrates in the modern world is that you can group a lollipop in the same group as you know a banana they're both carbohydrates the effects on the body are totally different so what i'm saying is that you can eat a high-carb diet that is made from real food, not processed carbohydrates. I'm not in any way saying that sugar is a good thing and that we can just go for it. Absolutely not. I think sugar is terrible. But if you're eating whole foods, you're going to be fine as long as you're not having a whole food diet of high carbs and really, really high-fat diet too. That's when it becomes problematic. And so for someone without diabetes, if they are looking to improve their health or uh, perhaps want to lose some weight, then you're saying maybe they need to consider going at either end of the spectrum. So like deviating towards a higher fat diet or a higher whole food carb diet. That's exactly right. Because the second you deviate either way, you're going to get some pretty damn good results. The reason I find that if you eat whole foods and a lot of fiber in your diet is you get full on healthy foods that some of the longest living populations ate. If you think about the blue zones, I'm not sure if people understand what the blue zones are. I haven't really talked about the blue zones, so yeah, yeah, if you want to elaborate on that. I mean, I'm certainly not an expert in this, but my understanding is the blue zones are these population groups that have been studied through like epidemiological studies where they look at prevalence of different diseases, you know, the average BMI of people, how much, you know, so whether they're overweight, underweight, what they're eating and looking at their health and longevity and all these health outcomes. And the people in the blue zones not only live the longest, so they have the most people who live to be over 100, but they have the least amount of chronic disease. And when you look at what they eat, it is a predominantly plant-based, very high fibre, very nutritious diet. So 
my concern when I was keto was that I wasn't eating in the way that these blue zones were eating. So the things that I was restricting, whole grains, beans, legumes, starchy vegetables and fruit, you can't eat those things on a keto diet, was not aligned with the longest living, healthiest populations in human history. And that was a problem for me. I, I was a little bit worried. And then especially the modern keto diet, which is really quite a processed diet. I mean, you're eating a lot, a lot of, of cheese. So, yes, <laughs> there's a lot of cheese. There's a lot of coconut oil. A lot of coconut oil. A lot of uh, butter in coffee and butter on everything. And people don't like to hear this, but coconut oil and butter are refined products. They are not natural. That's not the whole form. When you look in nature, that's not how they came. They are processed, which means you're basically getting these liquid calories of fat calories, so tons of energy in with no fiber along with it. So it doesn't really fill you up like it would if you were eating a big salad. And again, like the the modern keto diet, which is what I have a problem with, I don't have a problem with the state of ketosis because you can achieve that fasting or not eating for long periods of time. That's fine. That's fantastic. I just think we shouldn't be recommending for people to get most of their calories day to day from coconut oil, butter, bacon, and cheese. Mm. And that's what people are kind of clinging to. They've seen this diet where you can justify some of your worst habits. Yeah, totally, because you think, oh, this is amazing. I can have bacon and eggs in the morning and I can just have buttery, delicious, cheesy things all day. But you're not really getting a lot of nutrients in there, are you? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think our bodies evolved to eat that way I don't think naturally <laughs> oh you don't think we evolved to just eat cheese and, bacon <laughs> yeah. and butter all day well no you know but a plant-based diet kind of makes a bit more sense you evolve to eat the mm. foods in their whole form that are naturally growing around us correct yeah so with a plant-based diet the one thing that you can't get is vitamin b12 is that right yes that is right so have there been any studies that show naturally how often you might need to eat some form of meat to get enough B12? That's a great question. I actually don't know the answer to that. I'm totally making this up, so I hope there's no experts out there that go, what is he talking about? <laughs> I think that if you if you ate meat once, twice, maybe three times a week, that you'd probably get enough B12. But the problem is, is even people who aren't vegan or plant-based are still B12 deficient because our modern world, our soil no longer contains B12. That's where, that's where it comes from, really, is the, the bacteria in the soil and the quality of our, our soil would provide us with enough B12, but we no longer get that. Like I'm taking a B12 supplement while I'm on this plant-based experiment and I had a blood test done and my B12 was through the roof. I'm probably overdoing the supplements. But I think that if I were to say stop supplementing and eat meat three times a week, I reckon that could do the trick because that's what these, when we look at the blue zones again, that's about how much meat they were eating. They were only eating about 5 to 10% of their diet were coming from meat and animal products. Mm. So I don't think we need to be eating meat at every single meal. No, definitely not. And certainly not in the amounts that we are. It's probably the least sustainable thing we can do for the environment. And we also kind of rely on it as well, you know, like a meal is not a meal without meat in it. So yeah. I, I think it's important to just be aware of that. Not everybody has to go vegan or no. vegetarian, but at least just cut down and be aware of how much meat we're consuming and how much yeah. we really need. Yeah. So, yeah, Drew, you inspired me to do a bit of a plant-based experiment a while ago. So I did a month, and for us, for Maddie and I, it was really quite interesting, just sort of opened our eyes to our dependence on meat Mm. in almost every meal. And I couldn't remember, before doing this plant-based experience, 
experiment for myself. I couldn't remember the last day that I hadn't, I hadn't eaten meat. It was like me every day that I could remember. Yeah, me too. I would have eaten meat, yeah. I don't think in the eight years previous to doing this plant-based diet, I don't think I ever went a day of just purely plant-based. One mm. day. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that our ancestors probably would have been like pretty much plant-based most of the time. Then they would have killed something and they would have eaten that meat for maybe a few days a week. So, like, I reckon you would have gone between, in some populations, between plant-based and then carnivore. Totally. That makes perfect sense. Mm. And when you go through that carnivore phase, you'd probably be in ketosis, mm. which is okay for maybe a couple Certain of weeks. Amount of time. Yeah. yeah. But the fact that we're living in ketosis, or some people are anyway, I mean, even these days there's a carnivore trend is the next diet, that people are going carnivore for like two years. <laughs> I mean, I just can't see how that's healthy, not eating a vegetable for two years, being in ketosis for two years. Because you've got to remember. Would, keto- they, would they be in ketosis on a carnival diet? Because it depends. It, and this is the thing is that unless you're actually measuring your ketones, we don't know. So no. that's what bothers me as well about the keto diet is that there's these proponents out there saying, you know, keto diet's the best thing ever. But they don't even know if they're in ketosis unless you're measuring your blood ketones. So just eating cheese and hoping for the best. Yeah. yeah. Like you're, you're basically eating a diet that mimics a keto diet, but you, perhaps you're not physiologically in ketosis. Yeah, when I, I experimented with a keto diet, and I've done it a couple of times, the longest time has probably been for about two months, and I was monitoring my ketones with just like urine strips that I yeah. pee on, which weren't that accurate, or so I've been told they weren't that accurate. But anyway, I was like pretty strict, and I still found it quite difficult to get into ketosis. I used fasting quite a lot to help me get into ketosis because it was just a form that I liked to do, and it was easy for me to slip into ketosis that way. But it's still, it's so restrictive if you're actually doing it properly. Yeah. My view on it anyway is the state of ketosis is kind of the state that your body would be in in a famine. If you're in a nourished, well-fed state, you're not in ketosis. Nobody is. Mm. So why would we want to live in a state of famine or in a state of physiology that mimics being in famine? I understand going in waves. I totally get that. You can go in and out of ketosis. You can, like you said, do fasting. Great way to get into ketosis. I don't think we need to be drinking butter every day to get into ketosis or use it as an excuse to eat cheese and other stuff. But um, from my perspective, when I'm giving advice now, I'm all for self-experimentation. I you know, encourage people to try different things, see it's what works It's the only way to you. truly know yeah. as well. because we all, we're all different. Like you actually raised a good point about carnivores. Are they actually in ketosis? Because if you're eating that much meat, it's shown that even if you eat too much protein, you can get out of ketosis. So maybe a carnivore diet, you're not even in ketosis. So what's the point? You know? Yeah, I find it interesting when people say they go on a diet and that it fixed them up. They completely lost whatever ailment they had, you know, whether it's a plant-based diet or whether it's a carnivore diet or a paleo diet or a keto diet. And I think a lot of the time it's not necessarily what they're eating, it's what they've stopped eating. So for most people, they, they were probably eating this diet, which was probably like you said, sort of in between. They were having refined carbohydrates and fat, that sort of dangerous combination that was probably causing some level of sickness in their body. And then they're like, well, now I'm going to go to one of these other forms of diet, which generally cuts out refined carbohydrates and sugars, and they do see an improvement. Yeah, that's such a good point. We've got to look at the common thread. What, what, are, the, what are the commonalities between a keto diet and a plant-based diet? Well, in both of them, you're not having any processed sugar. Yeah. Okay, great. So is it the fact that you're eating meat that's making you healthy, or is it the fact that you're not eating processed sugar? We need to define that. We need to understand that the, both diets deviate away from that middle towards more whole foods, which is why people see results. And the other thing is when people f- 
change their sort of diet for the first time and they do experience those results that you just explained, they cling to it. They feel like they just found the silver bullet. Yeah. When really there are multiple solutions. Yeah, there are Mm. solutions out there. You don't have to cling to the first thing you find just because it worked. Maybe there's another solution that could work just as well on the other end of the spectrum and that you need to be willing and open-minded enough to make changes and just because it works for you today, it might not work for you tomorrow. Or maybe it's worked for six months, but in a year it might not work. And, you know, really we need to be resilient and I guess have the, the mindset that our bodies are always evolving and adapting. And until we find something that we can sustain for a lifetime, we need to be willing to just keep experimenting until we can figure out what works. Hey, so another thing that you're quite passionate about and interested in at the moment is the pet food industry. Tell us a bit more about that. Because obviously you've got Dennis, Daily yes. Dose of Dennis. Shout your dog, out to Dennis. Um, who is yes. now an Instagram influencer in his own right. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, is. so you, yeah, your dog's a, a yeah. grammar. Yeah, he's a grammar. He's a grammar. <laughs> how, how did so, that happen? That happened kind of overnight, right? Whole, thumb. Honestly, yeah. the, the whole story was just so bizarre and unpredictable. Years ago, so this was probably like three years ago, I got asked to do a photo shoot for a dog pound and they were going to make fitness professionals with, with dogs and make a calendar and then sell the calendar and all the proceeds would go towards rehoming dogs. And what I month thought, What month were you going to be? I was January, which is my birthday. Nice. nice. Yeah. First one. First one. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I was. So I obviously said, yeah, I'm, I'm in. This is such a great cause. I've always loved dogs. I've never had one, but I've always kind of wanted to, to adopt a dog. And I did the shoot and I met Dennis, fell in love. I'll cut a long story short for this part because it is quite a long story. But <laughs> basically fell in love with Dennis. Just what an awesome dog. He was, he was making these really weird noises in his cage. And then I put him on the lead and I sort of gave him a little bit of a walk out in freedom and he ran a lap of the oval with him and then he fell asleep in the sun right next to me. And I was like, yeah, this is my guy, you know. So I rescued Dennis from the pound and I decided, you know what, like he's a talking dog. He's a Staffy and Staffy's notorious for talking, but he can really talk. So I was like, you know, this dog deserves an Instagram. People need to see this guy. I had no idea how big it was going to get, but I just got it to share it with people because I know it would give people a smile. So I got him this account and started posting some videos and then this animal media company called the Dodo, who have like millions of followers, they saw our story and they decided to make a little four-minute video about myself and Dennis and our story and how I adopted him and the sounds he makes and all this stuff. And that video went totally viral, had 25 million views. Dennis got 30,000 followers overnight. So really, I mean, I rescued Dennis because I totally loved him. I wanted to give him some freedom and he was so good for me and such a great addition to the household. I had no idea where it was going to lead to. Three years later, there's a, uh, a writer and a director are making a movie about the pet food industry and they needed a guy and his dog to be sort of the heroes of the movie and they chose myself and Dennis and you know we're set to start filming pretty soon which you know it's crazy to think that you can rescue a dog with absolutely no agenda whatsoever and now I might be in a movie you know it's just really (laughs) it's really strange so cool hey so Drew we've probably got time for one last little question arguably the most important one and it's a question that we always ask you know it's coming. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 we were talking about this last night at dinner. Yeah. I didn't we? prepare. Yeah. <laughs> we'll good, see. good. This is going to be totally off the cuff. Off cuff. Yeah. Hey, so Drew, if you could have three foods and three foods only for the rest of your life, what would they be? Okay, I'm going to answer this as uh, two different versions of Drew. Okay. I'm going to answer this. Oh, I like it. This is new. Okay, so if you asked me this question six months ago when I was a paleo eater, I would have said eggs, avocado, and nuts, I'd say. 
any different type of nuts or are we going for like a mixed Can nut we have selection? A mix? that, it doesn't yeah. count, does it? Does it have to be nuts one single ingredient? I'm, yeah, one, one ingredient. You're going to choose a nut, please. Okay. I would choose almonds because you can eat them as they are raw and you can turn them into butter. And how good is almond butter? So that's a versatile nut. And, so, and almond milk. And almond milk. You can yes. do that with cashews as well, and that's pretty bloody good. Oh, that's good. true. You can actually do it with any nut. What am I talking yeah, about? Yeah, that's but true. But some nuts are sweeter than others, and almond butter tastes pretty damn good. Mm. Macadamia would be nice too. Yeah, but, but you're only getting three. Okay, so yeah. anyway. <laughs> you know okay, what? so that's old uh, Drew. Old Drew. So new Drew, currently plant-based, I would say avocados for sure on the list. I just I love avocado. I would also go for a purple sweet potato. Oh, a purple. Controversial. Do you, do you eat those ones? Yep. They're my least favourite. Oh, they're your least. They're my I most. Like, hang on. Are they, are they purple flesh, flesh. inside? Okay. Correct. White, yep. no. white on the outside, purple in the middle. Ah. So, okay, we've, we, get a, yeah, we get a purple one that's purple on the outside, purple in the middle. And then we oh, get okay. one that's purple on the outside, white, white in, the in the middle. Yeah, right. And that's, that's, oh, that's the goods. Well, that's the money. Yeah. That's really? the money, that's the money yeah. maker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I avoided carbs for so long because I was kind of fearful of them when I was going through this experiment over the years. So now that I've rediscovered sweet potato, I'm like totally obsessed, which mm. is why I made my list. So avocado, I'd go a purple sweet potato. And ooh, this is tough because I need a protein source in there because mm. I've got my fat source, I've got a carb source. For a protein, I would probably go for, it'd have to be like a bean of some sort, maybe like yeah. black Mung beans bean, or perhaps. chickpeas or something like that. Edamame. Um, yeah, it could be mm. that too. Yeah. Mm. So I'd say a legume would have to be in there too. Mm. I'm thinking, Again, I'm going to make you choose oh, one. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the nut. This is stressful. You can't situation. take all of these beans okay, okay. and nuts, true. Um, I'm going to go for black beans. Okay. Okay. I can't justify it. That's just what I say. No, that makes Fair sense. Enough. And I'm just going to throw in a third Drew. So if this third... <laughs> If this third Drew could have three foods and this third Drew doesn't have diabetes. So oh, so he's he's just like whatever. He, you know? he just does not care yeah. about so macronutrients, say, health, he, forget about he, that. He doesn't know a thing about nutrition. Yeah. He's just like what okay, is yeah. feed me oh, okay. good stuff. That's I a good like. question. Because I answered both of those with nutrition in mind. Mm. Okay, so nutrition out the window. One of my favorite things to do, I call it a date bomb. I don't know what anyone else calls it. You get a date. Cut it in half, I take like the pit out. You put a teaspoon of a nut butter of choice in the little mm. divot. So maybe like say macadamia butter or peanut butter. And then you get a piece of dark chocolate and you just wedge it right in the middle and you eat that as a snack. Date bombs. That's date good. Bomb. So it would have to be a date, let's say peanut butter and dark chocolate. Yeah. That would be the third drew. In so fact, I could do just... that. Hey, that's plant-based. You could still do that. <laughs> totally. now if you wanted to. Just make it dark chocolate. Yeah. Yeah, like 85% dark chocolate. Yeah. Yum. So you'd be having that for the rest of your life. And I could eat that like... at every meal happily. Yeah. That sounds really good. I it's want to try that. very delicious. We should do it after this. All right. Well, on that note, let's go get some date bombs. But yeah. firstly, Drew, if people want to follow you, check out what you're up to, how do they see what you're doing, get hold of you? So I'm pretty active on social media, mainly on Instagram, Drew's Daily Dose. Uh, I have a website as well, drewsdailydose.com. It's currently under construction. It's a bit of a mess. Hopefully it's up and running before uh, this goes out. But yeah, so my website and my Instagram are probably the best places and I have a Facebook page as well, Drew's Daily Dose. And if you want to follow Dennis? Yeah, more importantly, <laughs> um, Dennis Harrisburg is his name and his Instagram account is a daily dose of Dennis and it's got a dot between each word. Yeah. Awesome. And he's, yeah, he'll give, he'll give people a lot of laughter and smiles. So oh, he, if he's you're going to follow pleaser. one of us, follow him for sure. <laughs> yeah. And Brian and Christine Green. 
Yeah, you know. <laughs> but they're totally inactive on Instagram. Let's they're be so inactive. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I've got to have a word with them when we get home. I know. Right? Hey, well, thank you so much for your time. It was such a cool chat. That was, was awesome. Thanks, really, really thanks for having me. That was so cool. And it's nice to be in Sydney and Bondi and have you guys here. So I look forward oh, to the next time. It? You know, next time I see you, hopefully it will be in NZ. Yeah, man, come on over. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Raw Collective. And for any updates on our podcast or any of the other podcasts under Raw, head to rawcollective.co or you can follow them on Instagram at raw underscore collective.co. But wait, before you go, please subscribe to our podcast and also rate it and review it. Leave a nice little message. Leave a smiley face, maybe an emoji. Or tell your friends. It's super easy. It takes two seconds and it would mean so much to us. Bye. Bye. Bye.